hi everyone and welcome to the All Plane Podcast where we talk with the movers and shakers that are redefining the future of commercial aviation. As usual, before we start, let me remind you once more that all previous episodes of this podcast as well as many other aviation stories are available on the All Plane website. That's allplane.tv A-L-L-P-L-A-N-E dot TV If our last episode was devoted to aviation, with Sherman and CEO Greg Davis here on the podcast. Today we continue our exploration of the electric aviation space with another very promising startup. This time we travel all the way to Bavaria in the south of Germany to speak with Ivor van Dartel, a Dutch aerospace engineer who is the founder of Veridion. Veridion is working on a nine-seater all-electric aircraft that is designed to facilitate fast and efficient zero-emissions regional travel. With Ivor, we have an in-depth conversation in which we talk not only about his project and the milestones ahead, but we also review some of the key principles, assumptions and data that underpin the current wave of investment in electric aviation, and how this might transform mobility in some of Europe's most dynamic economies. It is always a treat when you come across an industry expert that knows how to articulate so clearly his vision for the future of his industry. So without further ado, let me welcome Ivor to the podcast. Hello, Ivor. How are you? Hi, Mikael. I'm fine. How are you? Very well. Thank you. Where are you joining us from? So I'm here in our office in Munich. Excellent. Munich, which is the headquarters of Veridion, the startup, electric flight startup that you are heading. And we're going to talk now about this very interesting project, the aircraft that you are developing. But first of all, tell us a bit about yourself how you got into aviation and your previous professional background. Yes, wonderful. So my name is uh, Ivor van Dartel. I'm uh, from the Netherlands originally, and I studied aerospace engineering in Delft. Um, at a very young age, I was fascinated by aviation and flying. Basically, this started to get uh, real with uh, me taking up uh, gliding uh, in the vicinity of my hometown at the age of uh, 15. And uh, it, let's say it was clear on a very early age that I was going to do something with uh, aviation. And uh, yeah, it happened so to be that we had the Faculty of Aerospace Engineering in Delft. And when I started studying, it was not popular. Uh, in the mid-90s, uh, our national aircraft company went bankrupt, Fokker. Mm, so yeah. uh, when, when I joined, we were maybe 100 students. And I think now they have like waiting lists if you, if you want to study there. Yeah, actually, Delft, one of the top universities in Europe for technical studies, and particularly in, in aviation, I think aerospace is, is one of the strongest ones, I think. I would say uh, definitely, uh, but uh, let's say uh, this this has become much more known in the last couple of years. Um, when I when I joined Airbus in Toulouse in 2009, uh, some people had never heard of my university. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had, uh, I had uh, maybe because I lived in The Hague for a while, so it's it's nearby. But yeah, I, I always had this idea of the technical university in Delft uh, being not just for aerospace, but for all technical subjects. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, I think it's a really, really good place to study. Um, and um, I had the opportunity during my studies to have some first uh, experience with uh, electric flight. Uh, there's this exercise uh, called the design synthesis exercise where we as a bunch of students had the task well design a sustainable trainer aircraft. And uh, basically we went at it completely holistically, first taking all the options, you know, could you do something with biofuels? Could you do something with hydrogen? And then at some point, well, what about batteries? Is this at all feasible? And uh, back at the time we had uh, one professor, former astronaut, uh, Wilbur Ockels, 
who was a big advocate of uh, sustainability, and he was doing all kinds of uh, projects that were somehow also polarizing on the university campus, but at least got a lot of attention. A Dutch astronaut. And, uh, Yes, yes. Yeah. Unfortunately, he, he passed a couple of years ago, uh, but uh, he was uh, at, at one of the uh, space shuttle missions in the 80s. Uh, okay. And he became uh, later, he was actually a nuclear physicist, and then he became a professor at, at Delft Aerospace University, uh, you know, advocating sustainability before it was, uh, let's say, a, a trend. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, and and then at some point I realized, okay, this is an important person uh, in, in the in the university for sustainability. Let's let's go over the options with him. And uh, we it turns out, you know, batteries have one big disadvantage: lack of energy density. But if you can make it work, they have a lot of advantages as well, such as end-to-end energy efficiency, low maintenance cost, etc. And uh, basically, the conclusion was: if you make it like a big motor glider. So very low energy consumption in flight, and the aircraft has a limited say, size. Uh, you could maybe find an envelope where it works, and mm-hmm. and this uh, let's say uh, stuck with me. But then uh, you know it was not an environment where you would start a uh, moonshot startup. Basically, in two thousand nine, when I graduated, so I did the final thesis project in industry in Lockheed Martin on the F thirty five on the electrical system. Then I got a job offer at, at Airbus in Toulouse, and uh, you know, let, let's start your career huh, in, in, a, in a big uh, company. And I had uh, very quickly uh, was kind of moving away from an engineering career into a let's say more managerial career, not not completely in my interest, but th- yeah, I just followed opportunities as as I found them. Then ended up in a more manufacturing context, moved to northern Germany within Airbus. Uh, where it was about, you know, increasing output of AT20 aircraft. So what do you do? Um, and then I had the chance to come back to this uh, passion of uh, sustainable flight. Uh, at the time, there was an e-aircraft systems program in, in Munich, and uh, they were looking for a project manager. So I, I was no longer really working as an engineer, but much more in a project management program management role, as was still Airbus. And, and, and there was this project called the eFanX. Uh, yes, and, uh, yeah. And uh, you should you should imagine this this organization there that was like the Airbus Olympic team. You had the best and brightest from all the corners of the company being brought together in one uh, location where they had several demonstrator projects. And one mm-hmm. of them was this EFNX demonstrator. And um, let's say it was brilliant because you had really, on the one hand, opportunity to, to try out stuff. We had the means uh, and the, really the I think best collection of people you could imagine. But at the same time, it was clear there are, there are limitations, what you can do with batteries, especially when you, your strategy is, I build large aircraft. Yeah. And uh, uh, then let's say for me, it was also maybe clear that, uh, you know, th- there would be a, a limit at some point uh, what this could bring. And I turned again to a traditional position in, in the defense uh, division in, uh, in uh, the Airbus defense space, it's called now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was working on this Euro drone program, which is, uh, yeah, again, a, a different type of air vehicle. But once uh, that, w- that project was moving forward, it was also uh, COVID lockdown time. So let's just say you have time to think during those mm-hmm. yeah. periods. And um, yeah, I, I started thinking uh, like in the Munich ecosystem, uh, so much things going on with very impressive startups out of nowhere. Uh, promising extremely uh, great things and getting funding. Uh, so this this idea caught caught my let's say passion. 
And at some point during 2021, I, I resigned okay. uh, my, my corporate job, found a friend to join me as a co-founder who was also in this e-aircraft systems uh, program. And by that time, the attention of the company already turned towards more hydrogen-based technologies because of the bigger aircraft, let's say, strategy. Yes, the zero um, zero E, I think it's called. The, the exactly, program. I think it's a it's a program that's still running. And uh, and then we said, well, let's try to do a small airplane, mm -hmm. but battery electric, fixed wing. Uh, let's stay away from the EV toll space because it's very crowded there. Yeah, and actually and in, Munich, in Munich there are a couple of major players in in this EV toll space. Exactly, exactly. So let's say uh, we were convinced we wanted to do uh, a co uh, let's say fixed wing aircraft. Mm -hmm. Also, avoiding some of the big technical challenges you have to solve when when you try to do something else, and and also we found that there might be also a very interesting business case behind, uh, considering you know what's happening now in France with uh, domestic flights being uh, restricted or banned, and I think this will come to other places in Europe. Yes. So our vision was let's make something that is technically feasible certifiable in a shorter time and we can bring a benefit uh, to society in this decade mm -hmm. let's say yes. summarizing the, the mission of the company and that's a veridian how veridian got got started so exactly you are uh, you are making just to set the, the the frame here you are doing you're developing an electric aircraft it's a conventional yes. takeoff and landing yes. aircraft yes all electric, battery electric, for yes. nine passengers plus two pilots, so 11 people on, on yeah. board, yeah. and with a range of up to 500 kilometers, which is quite a lot for a, for an electric aircraft. Yes, it, of course, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, you need to get a range that is meaningful, and uh, 500 is a nice round number. Uh, and then it depends, of course, on the, on the flight rules. If you're flying VFR, if you're flying IFR, uh, let's say if we're flying full payload uh, IFR, it's maybe more towards 400. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's a, it's a platform that will have a versatility depending on what mission, under what rules you, you operate. Um, but, hey, we use a runway. So uh, uh, the infrastructure that exists, we can, we can use. And we fit into an aircraft category for which the certification basis is known even now including the uh, electric drivetrain part in which at least on, on the ASA side have written a lot of uh, regulations already. And what is your primary market for this? Because there's a lot of activity in electric aircraft. We had uh, Morel Westerman a few days ago here on the podcast that is very active in the field of general aviation and, and flight training schools. Then there's other entrepreneurs that are working on the, uh, let's say, the commuter and, and regional transport market. Even some other applications uh, could be even cargo or other stuff. Um, what What is your primary market, both in terms of geographical scope and in terms of applications and, and industry well use cases yeah so the, the aircraft you could define as a commuter class aircraft uh, however we want to uh, develop it for commercial air transport and the smallest category and i think the audience in your podcast is let's say aviation savvy so we mm -hmm. can we can be a bit detailed so we are in the cs23 level three which okay. is the smallest size plane you can you can use in a commercial air transport context Mm -hmm. That means uh, you could use it as nine-seaters are used primarily today. There's private-owned, there's air taxi uh, or air charter services. And there's very few commercial air transport companies who use it as a mini airliner. But we believe that this is the biggest uh, interesting application, considering 
all of the restrictions we will see towards the end of this decade on short haul flights. So the first uh, users who we believe would like to uh, use this aircraft are those, let's say, regional or domestic airlines who fly short haul up to 500 kilometers who face the risk of their uh, routes being either banned or being very much uh, made unattractive. And obviously, then you should ask the question, if I'm flying a 40-seater or even a 100-seater today, how can I fit in a 9-seater in there? Uh, so there might be some routes where it's not so practicable. Mm -hmm. But we do believe um, there are many routes where it is practicable and, and you can make the smaller size to an advantage where you trade uh, capacity to frequency. Yeah, instead of one flight a day, I have maybe 10 a day, Yeah, uh, for example. Um, so let's just say the first market is offered to those who need a solution that is emission-free to continue operating. Mm -hmm. Then, th But the bigger opportunity is actually not only in the air, it's, it's also on ground. Uh, when we talk about connecting regions which are underserved with uh, either infrastructure or public transport to begin with, Mm -hmm. And I like to I like to quote two numbers to put it into perspective. If we look at existing short haul air travel, and this is pre-pandemic figures, yeah. we're talking about roughly 400 million passengers globally who fly up to 500 kilometers uh, per year. Mm -hmm. And and I think this is only counting the flights which are taking 100 seats or more. So the actual numbers may be slightly bigger. But if you look at people traveling distances up to 600 kilometers in Germany alone, it's 1.4 billion people mm -hmm. who travel between 150 and 600 kilometers yearly. 80% mm -hmm. of these people are driving in their car mm -hmm. and 380 people, uh, 380 million of those travelers are business travelers. Yeah, so that means they, they, they have a budget to travel because they're traveling for business. Yeah. And that means, you know, if you have a high speed train connection, in some countries, we have some developed networks. That's great if it's there. But if from where you're going, where you're living and where you need to go, there's no high-speed train and there's no flight, what do you do? You take your car and it costs you time and CO2 and it's costly. Yeah, the famous and autobahns the, in Germany. Yeah? Autobahns, but some places don't have a proper autobahn uh, connection even. And uh, we have also developed a small app uh, that everyone can can download on the uh, iOS store or Apple store or, or Google Play store. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a gimmick. It's not 100% uh, accurate, but it gives you the, the, the perspective of how much time I could save at, on a trip up to 500 kilometers comparing different modes of transport. And, okay. and what do we take benefit of? The fact that on the European continent, and this is also true for the United States, there's lots of existing small regional airports. And I think there's many studies done about it. The famous one from NASA, the regional air mobility. Uh, several people have realized this is not our invention, but we, we, we take note and take benefit of the same insight. Use the existing infrastructure that is there and offer uh, shorter point-to-point -point air connections, which previously were not economically viable because who is going to fill up a 100-seater in a r random medium-sized city? But can you fill up an electric nine-seater, which has competitive operating costs? Probably yes. So we're talking about a fair price of uh, order of magnitude 300 euros for one leg, three, uh, up to 400 kilometers. For one person. For one person. One leg. Which is not one leg, which is uh -huh. not, uh, let's say, uh, uh, let's say uh, low-cost carrier pricing. 
Yeah. But it's uh, cheaper than your entry-level business class uh, airfare. And it gives you the private jet comfort. Yeah, You're being picked up at the smallest local airport and you can fly closest to your final destination and minimize the first and last leg. Yeah. And, 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 and you and save the petrol. I mean, if you drive, like 80% of the people you said that drive those distances, if you drive 400 kilometers, a return trip, that's also quite a lot of money in fuel. Yeah, in the yeah. current yeah. context, with uh, I don't know how it's a, what's the price in Germany now. It used to be around two euro, something around two euros per liter or something like that for fuel. Yeah, in the last year we hit two euros. Uh, I think now it's around one eighty. Uh, yeah. Diesel and petrol, both of them, it's quite expensive. But also electricity, if you're charging your electric car, yeah. it's now sometimes fifty cent per kilowatt hour. So we have we've done a lot of comparisons, obviously focusing a lot on Germany. But if I just may quote one example. No, we're not talking about the airplane. I'm sorry. <laughs> mm -hmm. No, that's but fine. I, I mean, it's a context that it's yeah. important to understand what's the business yeah. case for this type of aircraft. Yeah. yeah. So if I take, uh, and I'm not even have to go to a rural area to get a good example. If I take Munich, Dresden, so so let's say both capital cities in the federal state of Germany, which have an air, a big airport and even also smaller airports. We compare the, let's say, the bus line, eh, like uh, there are low-cost bus operators who offer this connection. We compare the train, second and first class, conventional car, electric car, airline, and our Viridian solution. Um, the bus will take you six and a half hours, and uh, and then the airline will take you door-to-door -door four hours and ten minutes because you need to fly to Prague because there's no direct connection. Okay. And then you need to drive again from Prague to Dresden. And our solution door to door would be three hours, including the pickup and the, and the last mile. And if you take into account, uh, let's say we assumed here 270 fair price plus 50 euro transit costs, uh, it is still cheaper or similarly priced as driving your own car. If we take into account cost of ownership, which will be a five hour drive in, in which you cannot work. Yeah. Uh, you could argue if I take the train, at least I sit in the train, I can do work or read a book. Uh, but it's still five and a half hours of travel time. It depends on the combination. I mean, I guess maybe between Munich and Dresden, there's still a decent service, but I guess that's not the case for all city pairs. Exactly. And okay. and, and then if and then if we go to more, uh, let's say, medium-sized cities or more rural areas, then the benefit only becomes much bigger. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So basically, there is this market out there, but there's also quite a lot of, uh, well, not I don't know if a lot is the right word, but there's a few other companies that are pursuing this market as well. Uh, for example, we had on the podcast recently, Aviation, developing a similar concept, also nine-seater aircraft, all electric. Yeah, yeah. And we've got other, other entrepreneurs that are working on this field. Is there going to be enough market for, for all of you guys? Because it seems there's, there's like maybe half a dozen, maybe even more projects that are kind of pursuing the same market, which is, I guess, in, in maybe in the US is more, the commuter market is more developed. We were talking about this with the um, aviation CEO about the difference between the US and Europe. I don't know if people are mentally prepared to to think about this kind of air commuting. Yeah, yeah well, I, I first of all, I would say uh, it's wonderful that there are other companies out there and, and I'm especially grateful for aviation and the recent success of bringing their first uh, uh, Alice into the air because it takes away the general doubt, could it be done in principle? So this is now answered, yes, it can be done in principle. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a big aircraft that they built. Eh? It, uh, it's, yeah. uh, it's impressive. 
Um, so, so that is great, and and I think every healthy market has has competition. True. Yeah. Uh, will it be big enough, and can people imagine? Well, there's at least one country in Europe which is uh, far ahead of everyone else, and this is Norway. So Norway, I think, has already pub- publicized uh, published, sorry, as early as 2016 or 2017, their ideas of their let's say uh, public service uh, obligation routes to electrify them. Yeah, and I'm, if I might add here, uh, yeah. just a bit of, of promotion, we had the head of sustainability of Avinor, which is the exactly. Norway Norway's uh, yeah. airport operator that operates a whole network, yeah. almost a whole network of, uh, of airports exactly. in Norway. Uh, yeah. Although it must be said that in Norway, they have two things going for them. One is the, the geography, which yes. is really a lot more complex to move around by land in Norway. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other the other is the electricity. Is, Norway is a huge producer of of green exactly. electricity. Yeah, no, exactly. The, the the conditions are in their favor, but still, I I would really congratulate uh, the Norwegian government, but also the the institutions as Avinor for the insight that mm-hmm. their uh, country is the perfect place to create and start this market. So they have the instrument of these public service uh, obligation routes to just put in the tender requirements has to be done with sustainable uh, aircraft or emission free. They have routes and let's say passenger volumes, which are probably more manageable to do. Eh? If it's less people you need to transport over short distance, it's more realistic. You could achieve it. And they have abundant green energy available and, and they own all the airports and operate them. So they have everything in, in, in one hand. But as you see also with electric cars, uh, once uh, it works in Norway, it will work everywhere else. And and the Norwegian market is not that small. We we calculate, uh, let's say, the equivalent of our aircraft. If you just translate the amount of seats they have right now flying to the nine seaters we have, that's maybe up to a thousand aircraft. Yeah, no, Norway that's definitely. There's yeah. there's a market. There's a place where you have lots yeah. of people uh, living in scattered communities, uh, which yeah. are very hard to reach otherwise because they yeah. are it's physically impossible. <laughs> they are yeah. islands, yeah. fjords, mountains. Yeah, and yeah. they have the economic capacity to sustain all this exactly. air travel. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, I was in in Oslo uh, in in one of the conferences organized there, where they've basically uh, uh, shown how they've done the homework from all the angles. So so Norway, we think, is the first country that will implement a commercial air service completely emission free. Mm-hmm. And you see uh, the neighboring countries in the region, because of course they have a lot of collaboration in the Scandinavia, yeah. uh, Scandinavian area. We see Sweden doing similar plans, Denmark, Finland. Yeah. Uh, so t- this will happen. And then if we look the opportunity at continental Europe, especially if we to- look at northern Western Europe, where there's a very high concentration of urban areas, people living trade, mm-hmm. and we see the poor international train connections. And taking an international train, which is not a high-speed train, is very complicated. You have to buy different tickets. The, yeah. the voltage system of one rail network is not the same as the other. I can show you one map. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you have many many places that are densely populated and they are just a bit a bit too close to fly on a conventional aircraft yes. but a bit too far to drive c- conveniently. Yes. Yes. And and if you consider that in this northern western part of Europe, let's say northern France, Benelux, uh, western part of Germany, that's about 50% of the intra-EU trade happening there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So lots of business travel happening there. 
Yeah. And um, so just I, I, I get excited about this, but let me try to summarize. We think mm -hmm. the market is worldwide about 30,000 nine-seater aircraft up to 2040. 30,000 uh, aircraft. Yeah. Two? Yeah. How many? To, from 30,000 to? You said another number? Uh, in, uh, up to the year 2040. Oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, today we have about 10,000 nine-seaters in service, 80% privately owned, and uh, they are on average 40 years old. <laughs> worldwide? Yes, worldwide. I think most of them are probably in the United States. These are purely the, the nine-seat uh, okay. aircraft. Okay, yeah. okay, okay. Yeah. We have the, the, the Beach King Air, Chisna Caravan, mm. Pilatus yeah, yeah. 12 those kind of aircraft. Mm -hmm. So I think what, what's going for us uh, is that probably more and more people understand that technically or technologically you could make a nine-seater aircraft fly on batteries. I think there's less and less doubt on that. Mm -hmm. And then in our case, we even show that with today's battery technology, uh, you can make it work because we optimize aerodynamics and weight more than most do. So we, we intend to be uh, somewhat lighter. So we stay in the level three. And uh, the, the, the next step is now to convince that you can make money with this. And uh, that it, that is that has a business case. And the interesting insight that we got while we were talking to some, uh, let's say, air operators or people from the operations side, and we are the aircraft technology people, and we talk to people who will use it, mm -hmm. is that what what could you what is the product you sell as an airline when you fly the nine seater? So we know products like private flying or time sharing, net jets, those kind of things, which is now a, a market which is uh, growing. But at the same time, when we were discussing how could the cabin look like, what would fit in this tiny fuselage, and then what would mm -hmm. be the seat pitch and the, and the comfort, we came to the conclusion that the passenger experience is not worse or comparable as if you sit on a business class seat in a short haul aircraft in Europe. So, of course, yeah. if you're on intercontinental business class, that's a different yeah. uh, well, the, level the, of comfort. The, the short, short haul business class in Europe is <laughs> it's not a particularly high benchmark to, to, to compare with. No, but, but still people book that. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, how, many, how many business class seats do you have in your aircraft and how much of the profit of that flight comes from those kind of seats? Mm -hmm. So let's, let, I think we got a report from uh, PricewaterhouseCoopers that says on average 12% of your passengers is business class. And on average, 75% of your profit comes from that 12%. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So now one thing that we, we, we are saying, well, in fact, what we're doing is we're taking the business class out of the 100 seat that puts it in a separate small airplane. Mm -hmm. So you have nine business class seats, yeah. which you can even operate from the GA terminal. People don't have to stand in line anymore mm -hmm. and even fly from a, from a closer airport. And, if, and then you say, uh, do I replace a 100-seater with a 9-seater? No, you're replacing maybe a 26 or a 12-seater with a 9-seater. Yeah. Then the gap starts to become smaller. Now, this needs, of course, more, uh, more discussions, more analysis. But we think that with the flight hour cost that we can produce, which we have currently calculated based on some assumptions and some real data, it will be uh, extremely competitive to use. Yeah. Are you planning to get into the business of distribution or operations? Because, for example, I talk with a fellow Dutch entrepreneur in the electric space, uh, yeah. Morris, that is developing also an electric aircraft in the Netherlands. And they have also a kind of a, a part of their business, which is looking into more the operational part of 
how to deploy and use this aircraft. And also in Germany, actually in Munich, uh, there's a company called FlyV, it was here on the podcast as well. And the, the person is leading this project. They, they are not building an aircraft, but they are designing uh, an airline that will operate electric aircraft on an on-demand basis, a bit like a, a, bit like a taxi operator. Yeah. Uh, with with electric aircraft but but in some way this let's say this uh commercial side the b2c side of this business is still not fully there so are you expecting this ecosystem to emerge as soon as the let's say the hardware becomes feasible to operate or you are planning to get involved as well in this part of the business well, I mean, first, I think we, we should be a little bit uh, with our feet on the ground in the sense that we are an early stage startup mm -hmm. and uh, we, we are demonstrating our key technology this year. And then we are still some years away from the first flying aircraft. Uh, but obviously, yes, the, the, the market side of being the operator is, is interesting. Uh, at least it's a large market. At the same time, I realized that our industry is a conservative industry. And uh, if you ask the average person who went on holiday or on a trip, you ask them, what was the type of plane you flew? Most people don't know. Yeah. But if you ask them, with which airline did you fly? fly they know always. They say, oh, yeah. I took uh, Lufthansa or uh, Iberia or it was yeah. Ryanair because I didn't mm -hmm. have money. You know, uh, this they will know. And for the end customer acceptance, and this being a novel technology, and, and of course, there's people out there who are saying nasty things about electric flight as well. And same as is happening in automotive, you know, this was all, took some time. The, I think the main seal of trust is if a, an established brand in the airline industry decides we're going to fly electrically. Definitely believe that, uh, and, and they know the business, they know how to, and they will adapt the new type of plane and find the best ways to operate it. Mm -hmm. Does it mean there will be no new players? I think there will also be new players, especially when we talk about offering routes, which were traditionally not really offered. So maybe companies who are in mobility already, but not yet flying, they see an entry point. Mm -hmm. um, but this will then definitely happen in the, in the next decade, between 2030, 2040. Mm -hmm. Yeah, indeed. And where are you now with the project? Because I read that you close a funding round in two, uh, sorry, in June or July in 2022, um, 3.5 or oh, 3.7 million. Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, it depends if you if you if you mean dollars or euros and what exchange rate. <laughs> ah, true. Yeah, is it? Yeah, I was three, assuming it was three, euros, but I'm not three, sure. Three, no. 3.2 uh, uh, in euros. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, so uh, we we communicated in in summer indeed last year. And this, this enables us to do the following things. Mm -hmm. So we now have a, uh, our, our team is there. Our core team is now established. We are about 20 people. This is a multifunctional team with highly experienced professionals coming both from both industry and R and D. Mm -hmm. Uh, so the average person has more than 10 years of experience. Uh, within our team, we have experience with four electric aircraft demonstrator programs of which three flew. Okay. Uh, and, um, and then on top the traditional aerospace uh, program experience. And, uh, what we are doing this year is confirm the technological feasibility, which is around how to integrate a high voltage battery system in a primary aerostructure. And can I certify the batteries? I guess you're sourcing them from somewhere else. Are you using the lithium ion battery or you are opting for, you are trying with different technologies? So we are sourcing the cells. 
Uh-huh. And uh, we have uh, partnerships with uh, a few uh, cell suppliers. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, from the cell upwards, it's our design. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, and it's about uh, getting the best fit and also having, because we are working with the clean sheet aircraft design, we have the possibility, and I think this is the only way to make it work, to size the aerostructure for the battery. Okay. But if I'm if I may make an analogy to automotive, it wasn't until the skateboard platform was uh, invented by the famous big manufacturer from California that you could build a car around it that could get a decent range. Yeah, actually, that's one point that came up during my conversation with the aviation CEO. He he told me our plane looks so cool because we build it around the batteries, not the other way around. Yeah, so I yeah. guess you guys doing the same. Your your air, your airplane. I mean, I've seen the renderings. It looks yeah. re- really cool as well. I don't know if that's yeah. a final design. It's uh, not a final design, but there's one uh, big uh, difference with the concept of uh, aviation. Uh, so we focus on integrating the batteries inside the wing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as far as I understood, they, they have placed them elsewhere. Uh, but there's one big advantage about that. Uh, and, and I think this could be our unique selling point in, in, in terms that yeah, I, I like to quote uh, Otto Lilienthal, you know, one of the pioneers. He said, yeah. uh, a powered flight is about the wing, it's not about the engine. He was flying uh, without engines, yeah? The, yeah, uh, gliders. Gliders, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he, and, you know, basically what it means is first it's about aerodynamics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's the same for, uh, for electric uh, flight for two main reasons, for aerodynamics and for structural design. If I want to have an aircraft that has lower energy consumption, I need to have lower drag. Yeah, this is uh, logical. So, uh, in principle, as a, as a battery has a, let's say, poor energy density compared to other energy carriers, uh, we need to reduce the energy consumption of the aircraft. And that means lower drag. And we know from, I think, since probably 100 years, how do you reduce drag is, uh, uh, for example, a higher aspect ratio. So, all air vehicles today who are, let's say, low energy consumption, they are, they are essentially long endurance platforms. They have high uh, aspect ratio wings or slender wings and achieve a high glide ratio, L over D. So mm-hmm. we're talking about motor gliders or gliders or surveillance platforms, drones or manned, whatever. And uh, one challenge about making a high aspect ratio wing is then how to do it structurally. It can become very heavy if you have a very compact slender wing that's very long. Uh, and how do you counter the, the, the weight? Uh, you put weight in it. Uh, how do you counter the structural weight? You put other weight in it. Where? So, in the wing. So, okay. I have lift. I have lift uh-huh. uh, for the entire aircraft. Yeah. Bending it up. I mean, this is a podcast. People cannot yeah, see it. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking, uh, we, this is going to be posted in audio, and, and we are talking now on, on, yeah. on the video yeah, call, sorry. and you are showing me with your arms. Yeah, <laughs> the movement. I'm sorry. But, yeah, but, but basically, yeah, the wings are moving up and down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so I get, I, get bending, I get a bending moment at the yeah. wing root. Yes. Now, and, now the, and then the principle of putting weight in the wings is very old. Right? We put fuel in the wings, engines, sometimes landing gears. So then the uh, the mass of those items in there and the gravitational force down reduces the bending moment and the shear force at the root. Okay. So the fact that I have, um, uh, let's say, batteries in the wing allows me to build the high aspect ratio wing. Mm-hmm. It's a per- it's a perfect match. And, okay. Uh, and 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 let's say the way we do this inside, this is our our unique selling point, and and 
a proprietary uh, design, uh, but it enables the, the whole concept to work, of course, within some limitations. That means up to nine parks, up to 500 kilometers, and we do not fly particularly high and not particularly fast. There are limitations. Mm -hmm. So uh, in terms of development, um, yes. now you are working on this concept and what's the time frame? What, what are the, what is the development time frame and the next milestones that we can expect? So this year we will have the first uh, wing box battery demonstrator being built. So mm -hmm. it's a, let's say to scale uh, section of the wing. Mm -hmm. uh, not, the first one will not be an entire wing, but uh, since there's, let's say some repetitiveness in the, in the, in the, the concept, uh, you, you only need to build so much wing to demonstrate that it works. This will be a fully functional and equipped section of wing with real batteries inside. And we will demonstrate that you can build the design, you can, it functions, and, and also uh, we will test it for, uh, let's say, certification representative conditions. So it's not a real means of compliance, but it's meant to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Because we believe that, that this is the key um, hurdle for certifying electric aircraft. And we've seen in the past uh, many aircraft uh, demonstrators which were which were brilliant in the sense they showed to the general public it could be done but not all of these craft that you see flying are close to a product that can be type certified yeah and uh, that's why from our point of view we said well let's wait with demonstration flying let's fly when it is a, a conforming a prototype for certification and that means in the pyramid up to that point we first uh, demonstrate on ground the main novel technologies we have some other demonstrators planned on other topics that I cannot disclose right now, but this year there will be hardware and it will be tested. Mm -hmm. um, then in the next step, um, we intend to uh, increase the size of the team significantly, which means there's a second funding round uh, coming up. And uh, then we intend to do the full, uh, let's say, aircraft development uh, project, including all the other um, yeah, items that any aircraft has, which is uh, maybe not new technology, but you need it. <laughs> Let's say yeah. landing gear, cockpit, uh, mm -hmm. a lot of things that we can take benefit of uh, of existing uh, good technologies. Indeed. And I guess the thing that most people must be thinking about now is when can we expect to see the Veridion up in the air? Okay, yes. Uh, um, so in the, in, the, in the world of uh, when everything goes... Perfect according to our plan, uh, which means uh, hitting all the technical milestones, getting the funding in time and growing the team. Uh, we intend to have the first flight uh, in 2026 and uh, we intend to type certify the aircraft in 2028. And uh, obviously there's a risk of some uh, slippage, let's say, in such a schedule. Yeah, uh, I, I do remind it's it's formerly a general aviation project, so uh, the, the 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 ten year development time is not necessarily applicable to our type of aircraft. So this is not a un, it's not an impossible schedule, but it's still uh, a demanding schedule. Yeah, but the main objective is be on the market before twenty thirty, because yep. here we believe the restrictions will will be live. All right. You've closed a funding round. You are you're completely a uh, private startup and yes. you have a venture capital uh, investors. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, we we have on top been awarded uh, a public funded project by the uh, Free State of Bavaria uh, okay. together with partners at uh, uh, Technical University of Munich 
Bauhaus Lufat and uh, Black Wave, which is a composite uh, startup. Well, they're a little bit bigger than we are. Um, mm -hmm. So we have also here in the Munich ecosystem a very good collaboration with other partners. And there, there are some good research programs for public funding for, for, uh, for companies like ours. But of course, to make a, a real product and, and uh, yeah, any aircraft development is a capital intensive uh, business. And there will be additional money needed, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I guess you plan to, to build it, to have a, yes. your own industrial facilities yes. and, and to basically to be an OEM. Uh, definitely. And, and obviously there will be a degree of partnerships with companies who can build part of it. Um, mm -hmm. And there's lots of companies out there who have capacity and know-how and maybe are looking for some new development programs. As you are aware, there's not any big aircraft development programs uh, running right now. So I think we will be able to have the right partners interested. But we believe that you know if this market is 30,000 aircraft worldwide and we intend to get maybe one-third of this market, we should build 1,000 aircraft per year at some point. Yeah. And uh, this is uh, new in the general aviation sector, building 1,000 aircraft per year. Most of mm -hmm. these uh, manufacturers build maybe 100 per year today. Yeah. But it's not unheard of to build 1,000 aircraft per year. If you look at the single L aircraft uh, from either Boeing or Airbus, these are the rates they are producing. Or if you look at um, uh, some military programs uh, that uh, that have high rate. Yeah. And and all the technology and also industrial processes to build at such a rate, uh, aerostructures, they are existing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So... For people that wish to learn more about Veridion and have a look at your the renderings of of your concept, where should they go? So uh, I'm not sure who listens to this podcast exactly, but at least they will know the Paris Air Show. We will be at the German Pavilion in the Paris okay. Air Show. Cool. That's uh, in June. I think it's in... I don't have the dates now. I'm going to put 18th. a link on the note. 18th of June, 2023. Yes. So this, exactly. this June. Yeah. So for the Paris Air Show, we will be exhibiting. Um, mm -hmm. And then maybe if there's anyone listening who's more from the uh, startup world, we will be in Hello Tomorrow in March in Paris. It's a, it's a deep tech startup event. I didn't know about this one. Yes, it's not only about aviation. It's a general, it's, it's a really good uh, deep tech event. Um, mm -hmm. There's all kinds of other businesses there. But, uh, but of course, in, in our business, uh, Paris Air Show is the main event of the year. Yeah, uh, we we will be there, part of the German Pavilion. The B, we are a proud member of the BDLI. Mm -hmm. uh, if I can promote them a bit, BDLI <laughs> because uh, they help us a lot. Is, yes, is it's it... the German uh, Association of of Aircraft Manufacturers. Oh, okay, I guess the B stands for Bundes. Uh, exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're Bundes also proud member for Deutsch, Deutsch, Deutschland. Uh... Yeah, and the Luft- and Raumfahrtindustrie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're, we're also a proud member of the Bavaria, which is the regional cluster, uh, yeah. uh, which which help us out with events as well. We'll there is uh, by the way, there's another event we will be at in Munich. Mm -hmm. It's the uh, I think it's called Aerospace Tech Week or something like that. Okay, um, uh, which is also a very broad aviation event uh, because there will be airlines, there will be equipment manufacturers, there will be um, it's the Aerospace Tech Week Europe. And this okay. is in end of March. Uh, mm -hmm. So if someone is visiting that, we will be exhibiting there as well. Okay. I'll definitely put links to all these events in the show notes so that people can check it out. And and your website, of course, uh, remind the audience, please, what the URL they should check. Viridian.com. 
Viridian with an A and an E, so V-A-E-R and Viridian.com, yeah? Exactly. Excellent. Yes. Well, it's only left for me to uh, wish you all the best with uh, with this project, yeah. and thank you for these very detailed explanations of of the both the technology and the business case for this very interesting project that that you are building there in in Munich in Bavaria. So, thank you very much, Ivor. Hopefully, we'll be attending Paris Air Show. Still not sure, but if I finally attend, would be of course passing by your booth to uh, to check out the novelties. Yeah, and, and actually, I forget one event which we want to attend is the World Aviation Festival in Lisbon. Ah, yeah, that's in sept in September, I think. Yeah. I don't know by heart, but uh, no, if, if it's another one where we intend to attend. Intend to attend. Uh, yeah. And um, no, and I also wanted to say thank you to you, Mikel. Uh, I, I follow your your website and your podcast, and and it's an honor to be part of it. And I think it's great to have one place on the web where we can summarize all these interesting projects because uh, this this needs to happen. Huh? Yeah. Um, uh, the time is running and the technology is available. We just need to engineer it. Indeed. Yeah. Well, a pleasure always to uh, you know host you here and 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 share all these insights that you've been sharing with the audience. Thank you so much, Ivor. If you like this podcast. A quick reminder that it would be absolutely great if you could please give it a rating on Apple, Spotify or whichever platform you are using or recommend it to a friend or whomever might be interested. Thank you very much and see you soon.